HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? Learn more about Wisconsin's cheese-making history at wisconsincheese.com. This episode is brought to you by you. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So we have a full studio today. This is exciting. (laughs) So I have three farmers in the studio with me. Sophie Akoff, the co-executive director of the National Young Farmers Coalition, who's based in New York's Hudson Valley. That's right, right? Um, And Drew Blankenbaker, a vegetable farmer from western Montana. And Kelly Plack, the herd manager at an organic grass-fed dairy farm in Wisconsin. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. So I'm, I'm so lucky to have... It's hard to get farmers into a studio in Washington, D.C., as you might imagine, mm-hmm. other than urban farmers, which there are not as many. And three at once is, like, really exciting. So this is a really good day. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, lucky enough to get all of you here together because you're in D.C. as part of Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture's new Regenerative Farming Fellowship. So, Sophie, you're working on leading aspects of the fellowship, right? And Drew and Kelly are part of the inaugural cohort of farmers. So... Let's start by talking a little bit about the fellowship. So, um, Sophie, how did um, the National Young Farmers Coalition get involved in this collaboration with Stone Barns? Yeah, so we started talking to Stone Barns about, you know, the challenges that we're facing in, in agriculture today and just the incredible innovative practices young farmers are deploying on the ground and wanting to create a community of young farmers somewhere on the spectrum of transitioning to regenerative practices Mm. so that they feel not alone in what they're doing. They have training and have access to experts in regenerative agriculture. And then the third piece of learning how to tell their stories and advocate for the support that they need to be successful in their pursuits 
that's really where Young Farmers Coalition can lend its expertise, right? We have a grassroots coalition of young farmers across the country. And, you know, our theory of change is that young farmers are their own best advocates and that um, by learning to share their stories and building relationships with members of Congress, they can ask for what they need and really be a part of determining the policy that's going to impact them and their farms for years to come. So we're excited to lead the policy advocacy portion of the fellowship. Right, and that's why you're here in D.C. Mm-hmm. right now. Um, but what, what other what other aspects are there um, in terms of like the structure of the fellowship? Is a lot of it training, or and like how long is it? Yeah, absolutely. So we this is our first year doing the fellowship, mm-hmm. and we brought a cohort six fellows from the middle of the country um, who are you know, mid-scale producers. So we defined that as bringing in 200000 or more in um, gross sales to their operation. Okay. Um, we were a little bit lenient in, you know, who we chose to be in the, in the cohort, focusing on that, but really wanting to make that cohort as diverse as possible. Um, and so with the idea that that um, voice is really unique in the agriculture sphere of these mid-scale producers in the middle of the country who are transitioning to regenerative practices, that they need support and training. And so the fellows have been together um, for, uh, it'll be two weeks, I think, by the time you all go home <laughs> and on Thursday, which is an incredible commitment to leave your farms yeah. for that long. And um, But to um, work with Stone Barns and an organization called Mad Agriculture to really understand what practices are are possible on your operations, and you both can speak to this more than I can, um, to participate in the Young Farmers Conference as well, to meet young farmers from across the country mm-hmm. who are um, getting started in agriculture and growing their businesses, and then to come to D.C. We had a full-day training today to go over you know, what is federal policy, what are opportunities to engage in it, mm. um, how to really be educating our members about agriculture in their districts and to meet with not only our members of Congress, but also USDA to share our experiences in using federal programs, what's working, what's not working, so we can really, we are the experts, right, in using those programs on the ground. They really value our um, Experiences and yeah. want to help make the programs better. They need they need your perspectives mm-hmm. because they you know they're in D.C. in their offices and they can't um, know what's going on in their districts. Mm-hmm. Um, so so Kelly and Drew, um, what drew you to this fellowship? Like especially because it's the first year. Um, like I'm curious how you found out about it and what you were hoping to get out of it. Sure, I I heard about it through the National Young Farmers oh. Coalition and. Uh, <laughs> You know, when, you, when you're tackling a problem uh, as complex as deploying regenerative agriculture across a landscape mm-hmm. uh, that is otherwise pretty uh, entrenched in the status quo, uh, I was attracted to the idea of this collaboration. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's uh, what was offered from the collaboration between the Young Farmers Coalition and the uh, Stone Barn Center and General Mills being involved, and uh, I don't know, it's been an amazing experience so far. Great. Yeah, and for me, I think just the collaboration, the connections, that is a big part of what I was seeking because mm-hmm. 
back in Wisconsin, um, sure, there are plenty of organic farmers. There are plenty of like very small diversified practices uh, or farms happening. But I don't feel like in my area there are a lot of people talking about uh, regenerative agriculture. Um, every day we're losing dairy farms. Um, and it just so happens that it's easiest usually to go into commodity cropping you know, situations after that. So right. how do I, you know, gain these connections with other people who are in that headspace and figure out resources and opportunities of how to actually like implement them back at home on the ground. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like there are a lot of, a lot of challenges that you all are facing, right. When you're going out and deciding to farm the way that you farm, um, what has been your experience so far in terms of the economic challenges of regenerative farming? Like, what do those look like for you, and how have you been able to implement some of these practices that a lot of people probably look at and say, like, I would love to do that, but I can't afford it on my farm. I don't have the resources. Well, on a bigger scale, which I'm not huge. I have a 240-acre dairy farm. Yeah. Um, so... I think for me, an easy one to implement was just grazing more, mm. keeping more land in permanent pasture, not spending that money on the extra seed to, you know, do more crops or things like that. But uh, in looking further down the road and more goals of mine, implementing more like trees in the ground and making more habitat for diverse uh, operations on the farm, it, it it's expensive to put those in, like putting mm -hmm. the trees in the ground, like thinking long term when you really don't see a payback in probably at least a year to five years down the road. Mm. So I think that's kind of the difficult part is able to come up with that upfront capital and hope that it pays back years down the road. Right. Yeah, we've heard that repeatedly across our conversations with uh, the rest of the fellows. And, you know, there's a lot of resources out there. Uh, and many do in part, uh, the, the organizations involved in this uh, fellowship. But, um, you know, for us, it's, we're an 80-acre diversified vegetable and livestock farm, and mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a values choice for us, uh, but it's also a necessary choice. Um, you know, at the Stone Barn Center, we learned about what Anthony uh, Mayant was doing with the zero food print, and, uh, you know, he emphasized how we need to align financial incentives with uh, soil health mm -hmm. and he's doing it in his restaurants uh, and now we're you know we're here in DC and we can uh, have that same conversation or aligning policy uh, with uh, and using incentives in that same way and uh, I guess you know we're we're working towards that on our farm and we are a ways uh, a little bit farther along than some of the other uh, fellows uh, but uh, I don't know. That's that's what the fellowship was was all about: was sharing ideas and right. uh, getting over those financial uh, challenges. Yeah, and are are any of you using um, federal or state programs that help you implement um, conservation practices on the farm, or have, has that been a big topic of conversation? And I mean, obviously, I'm sure when you're meeting with policymakers, you'll be talking about that. But I'm curious if if you've had experience with those programs and if they've been beneficial? There have been a lot of us who have already worked with EQIP. Mm -hmm. uh, I currently have a, I think, five-year-long 
uh, commitment with them on different programs. Um, and I'd say about half of the cohort has mm-hmm. had experience in, with Equip yeah. money. Um, but yes, we are absolutely being, um, we're learning about more opportunities that you can potentially take advantage of. It's just kind of seeing the um, fine print that maybe com- comes along with that as far as trying to implement the, the practices on your land. Right. Yeah, but at the same time, we're hearing that some of them have never heard of Equip. So. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, and there's so many. There's a lot of programs. And I mean, I think the National Young Farmers Coalition has done a really good job of that's one of the things you do, right, is try to tell farmers these programs are even available. And and then applying for them, too, can be really hard. I mean, you all are busy running farms, right? <laughs> the paperwork is intense. Um, and what about, Kelly, you mentioned, you know, this idea that um, up front, there's maybe an, an added cost to implementing some regenerative practices, but that then maybe one, two, three, five years down the line, you start to see the benefit. Are, are you like seeing benefits of those practices on your farm? Are you actually seeing costs go down as, for instance, the soil health improves, um, feed costs go down? Yeah, I think so, absolutely. Um, you know, when you treat your soil properly, it pays you back. Uh, so, I mean, you're putting less time, resources into you know, removing weeds or uh, interplanting in your pasture. If you're treating it properly, you don't have to, it'll kind of take care of itself better, you know, mm-hmm. um, the more rest that you give it or the less compaction that happens on it um, for in pastures. So I just, it's kind of one of those things where, no, I'm not getting um, a paycheck for, you know, yeah. improving my pasture, but at the same time, I'm feeding my cows a month longer on it. So, you know, it's absolutely creating savings, at least. Yeah, we right. see our crops respond to, you know, uh, it's for us, it's all about the resiliency of the land. Mm-hmm. And we see that in practical terms of water holding capacity or uh, resistance to diseases or pests through crop rotations and that sort of thing. Right. And a lot of those things are, are happening more often, unfortunately because of climate change. Um, are you all seeing a lot of erratic weather on your farms? Like, have you been um, confronting different weather patterns in the past few years as climate change intensifies? We had double the rainfall this year in Wisconsin is what we normally do. Yeah. Um, and while it has been very soggy and <laughs> difficult to, you know, make good forage, it's been difficult to even just maneuver around your farm. That was the wonderful thing about having added another 20, 30 acres of grazing land. Mm. It's, you know, I'm seeing that soil holding. Um, and even if you do have to send your cows through kind of a wet paddock, if you have a longer rotation period or rest period on that ground like it still will bounce back or it has been bouncing back um so it's been really wonderful to see that I can still you know work that ground with the cows right um even after that amount of saturation right yeah so I mean we've seen from our experience we've seen cooler wetter springs uh we live in a semi-arid um 
place. And but we always joke that farming's always been risky business. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but for us, it's about risk intelligence and and by you know fostering the things, the practices of regenerative agriculture. Um, you know, we can absorb those stressors like climate change. Right. Yeah. And Sophie, um, how is the Young Farmers Coalition? Um, specifically working on helping farmers address the... I feel like lately mm-hmm. I've been seeing a lot more in terms of communications from the coalition about confronting the climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, climate change poses the greatest risk to our farm future, right? And we really believe that young farmers hold a key solution to climate change, making sure that young people are able to get on the land. They are bringing incredible innovative practices to what they're doing. They're really motivated by entering careers in agriculture to protect natural resources for future generations and to fight climate change. You know, when I talk to many of the young farmers in our network, that's actually a motivation to enter the industry, right? So making sure that these young people can succeed is such a key strategy. And so we've been working for many years, you know, especially in the Southwest, where drought conditions really impact farmers right. every day, um, you know, for young farmers in Colorado, drought conditions have been the condition of their entire yeah. careers. So they are doing some incredibly innovative work um, to build soil health, to um, be able to keep more water in the soil. So really propping up them and making sure that they're at the table in water policy conversations that their mm. experience is a key um, part of, of that conversation and have been maybe not using the words climate change, right, to be mm. able to bring more people along and to focus on resilience and to focus on soil health because these are such it's all so connected. Um, but we're at the point now in our coalition, we've been a coalition for 10 years, climate change is more on the table to talk about in Washington, D.C. than it ever has been before. Yeah. And we decided it was time for our coalition to keep talking about resilience, keep talking about soil health, but to name it what it is and to talk about climate change as a key threat to our farm futures and to make sure in our advocacy in D.C. that young people are in the conversations, that they're the ways that they build their businesses are supported through any policy, climate policy that goes through the House and Senate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, When we get back, uh, more with Sophie, Kelly, and Drew. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin has storied cheese history that begins with Swiss, German, and Italian settlers in the 1800s and continues today with nonstop innovation and award-winning artisanship. Wisconsin was the first state to establish cheese-grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. It is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of this helps Wisconsin Cheese win more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. Take, for example, Decatur Swiss Cheese Co-op, who have made cheese since the 1940s. Steve Stetler is a Wisconsin master cheesemaker who developed several new cheeses for the co-op, including a European-style Havarti, 
a Swiss lace cheese called Stettler Swiss, and a Colby Swiss marbled cheese. His cheeses have won awards at the Wisconsin State Fair and the World Championship Cheese Contest. To learn more about Wisconsin's award-winning cheesemakers, visit wisconsincheese.com. You listen to Heritage Radio Network because, let's face it, you have really good taste. You care about where your food comes from, who made it, and its impact on the planet. Whether you're looking for an inspiring interview with your favorite celebrity chef, the latest on Dave Arnold's Spinzall, or if you want to get down and dirty with some agricultural policy, we've got you covered. 10 years in and 13,000 episodes later, HRN continues to be the go-to media outlet for thoughtful eaters like you. And we never could have done it without the support of our listeners. Help Food Radio continue in the future and help us raise enough funds for the year to come. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate today. And since you've got such good taste, we have some very cool member gifts for you to choose from. Thanks for listening and for being a part of the HRN community. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report. And I'm here with three farmers who are involved in the Stone Barn Center's uh, Regenerative Farming Fellowship Program. And so we were talking a lot before the break about um, climate change and how some of the ways that you all are um, implementing some really innovative practices on your farms um, that help with economics, help with um, the effects of climate change. Um, and Drew and Kelly, you both are also kind of uniquely working on issues um, in agriculture on your farms that are part of this bigger picture. Um, so I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about some of the other um, things you're doing. So Drew, um, I know that you are involved in farmland investment, right? And um, I mean, land transition and land access is one of the biggest issues in agriculture right now. Um, talk a little bit about how your company is approaching this. So I wasn't born on a farm, but I've always felt like I was born to farm. And uh, as a lot of us know, um, available, affordable land is really, really hard to come by. Right. Uh, it's persistently identified as the number one challenge um, for early stage uh, farmers and ranchers. So uh, we went about founding a community-based farmland investment company uh, to provide a new predictable path uh, to farmland ownership. It's built by farmers, for farmers. Uh, we figured out a way to unleash local capital uh, through rural investment cooperative. Uh, we find capable and vetted farmers uh, who intend to own then we acquire and lease farmland to those farmers and connect them with community-based investors, uh, all while generating uh, modest financial returns. So, you know, we're in our early stages, but uh, we always invite potential investors and existing landowners and farmers uh, to get in touch with us so we can, you know, start the good work of regenerative agriculture uh, on our country's most precious asset, our land. So is it um, just in Montana, or like what's the... the... We currently operate solely in Montana. Okay. But uh, rural investment cooperatives can operate in many states across the country, and that's certainly our goal. Right. And when you say community investors, like who are they? Who are the people that are investing in this? It's our 
customers at the farmer's market. Huh. It's someone who wants to help uh, young farmers but doesn't know how to or yeah. doesn't have access to the amount of capital that the existing models out there uh, require. Um, it's people who, you know, our neighbors uh, across the street at our farm. Uh, it's, uh, it's all community members. It's, that's the idea of the Rural Investment Cooperative. It's, uh, it's open to, to everyone. Yeah. At what kind of level? Like, if, do you have to be, um, yeah. do you have to have a lot of money? Or that, if I'm like, I want to help. That's, <laughs> that's the beauty of it. That's yeah. where we see the real value that we're offering. Uh, $1,000 gets wow. you a general membership in the cooperative, and then you can buy uh, preferred shares uh, at $5,000 and up. So it's, it's also democratically owned. It's, uh, we, we fundamentally believe that the structure of capital uh, dictates how that business operates. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're conscious of that, and it's, it's built into our model. That's amazing. So how many um, farms have you yeah, gotten so on land so we, far? We are certainly at early <laughs> stage, but there's two potential properties and farmers that we're trying to connect uh, that are long-term uh, brands and farming operations in our valley. Uh, and it's been overwhelming the amount of, of interest that we're seeing from uh, specifically landowners. There's obviously no shortage of farmers who are going to be interested in this. Right. But the amount of uh, existing farmland owners who are saying, if you give me a capable vetted farmer, uh, I don't have any heirs to take over this farming operation. So mm-hmm. uh, if you can provide that, uh, we're all in. That's mm-hmm. that's incredible. We just need somebody to do that maybe in every state. and then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the secure access to farmland, the importance of that, cannot be understated for carrying out these practices that we're talking about, right? Land access is the number one barrier that young farmers face. We found through our national young farmer survey of over 3,500 young farmers. And, you know, if you don't have a three plus year lease on your property, you can't financially invest in these practices. You're not going to be... You can't make those long-term investments and what it takes to to be a regenerative agriculture. And, you, yeah, you can't even access some of the government programs that are designed to help if you can't prove mm-hmm. that you have decision-making authority over the land that you're on. So right. it has huge implications for what farmers are able to do. And so, you know, when, when we go to the Hill, I hope that we're talking about the practices that we're able to do on the land, our land access, are we owners, are we, do we have long-term leases, mm-hmm. just to connect those dots for our policymakers who are... You know, they're hearing about land transition. There's not enough successors. You know, young people aren't competitive in buying land. Land is going out of production. It's going to second home buyers in many places. Connecting that crisis with climate change and, yeah. and making sure that getting young people on the land is a strategy for fighting climate change. Right. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Um, And Kelly, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, the fact that you're on a dairy farm in Wisconsin. You know, it is a really, really insanely hard time for dairy farms. Um, And I mean, I guess just in terms of what you're seeing, like how how has it been for you, especially um, doing things differently? Do you think that the situation for you is better than a lot of the conventional dairies that are going out of business? I think I, ju- I just heard this morning that some, something like more than 600 dairy farms in Wisconsin have disappeared this year. Um, do you think you're in a better position because of the way that you are approaching dairy so far? 
Um, I don't necessarily like to use the words like better, worse, or good or bad practices, mm. but I feel lucky in some of the choices that we have or have not made mm. uh, over the last few years. Um, I just came back to my family farm five years ago, mm. and that was the first year that my dad uh, chose to enter this niche market of dairying, which was not feeding your animals any grain. Right. Um, so we were able to maintain a small herd while still making a pretty decent pay price on our milk. Um, I chose coming back to not, not to uh, overwhelm myself by growing the herd too much. Um, but so it's been working out fine on the dairy side. Uh, lately, um, kind of by choice, but also kind of by force, uh, calves are not making any money at all. Hmm. Um, so I've been choosing to raise all of them. And uh, my breeding program has also been including Normandy and Fleckvie, so which are both dual purpose breeds. So I'm kind of at this point starting this like dual herd so I I, it's like a little bit of an insurance policy I feel like I could either go the dairy or the beef route or the way I'm going right now is both and um so yeah I I feel like you know all the all of those different um things that have kind of been choices but they've also kind of organically happened um I do feel like I'm okay um Mm -hmm. right now and I'm very glad that I didn't make the decision a few years ago to invest in new infrastructure on the dairy side. Because I think those are a lot of the people that are having issues in Wisconsin. It's like in the past five or ten years, they've invested heavily in new infrastructure, thinking, you know, by the 2014 pay prices, oh, things are going to go great yeah. in dairy. And then all of a sudden, three years of hardly making any money, like how are you paying off that, you know, that infrastructure and it's just it's heartbreaking. I'm seeing yeah, like two two farms a day are going away dairy yeah. farms. So it's, um, but yeah, I can't help but say like I didn't see that writing on the wall. It was more right. just like luck and kind of just going with what felt right in the moment, I suppose. Uh, but that's also making that's also like a really innovative solution. I mean, it, that makes me think like yeah, of course you you have extra calves when you're when you're a dairy right um and it, i guess what a lot of dairy farms are using um cows that wouldn't be like you're saying you have these dual purpose breeds right so maybe in in most cases that wouldn't work but why why are, have more people not done this as a way to like is there a strong market for those um cows if you raise them for meat I, like could this be a solution that other people implement on their farms yeah, I think it um, totally depends on how you're ch- going to choose to raise them. Mm. And also uh, if you have the land base to do it, mm. right? Like I'm, we're a little bit long on land at the moment. Um, so, and I'm, like I said, I'm kind of choosing to not feed them any grain. So it's yeah. going to take a lot longer. Uh, I'm going to have to direct market them in order to get that premium. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of comes down to owner's preference, right? Like I yeah. think there's a lot of older farmers who maybe are set in this way of like raising the uh, or having a dairy that has the quantity over quality milk, right? Like you, have, if you have your Holsteins who are producing a lot of milk, like those cow or calves, um, the male calves, if you're getting any like 
they're probably not going to go out and graze and make the best beef, you know, mm-hmm. to direct sell. But, yeah, um, yeah I, I think it's... But, but for you and your farm, it, it could work. And so it's yeah, an innovative approach. Yeah, it could work. Approach. Yeah. It's, it's adding a little more work to my plate, yeah. but I, I think that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's really... I mean, that's why it's so great to hear from individual farmers because, you know, people figure out these ways to do things that somebody else hasn't um, thought of or, you know, there's there's different approaches that um, I think other people can learn from, which is why a fellowship, I'm sure, is that's what you're doing, right? You're talking to each other about um, the ways that you've made things work. Um, I want to have a little bit of a philosophical conversation <laughs> um, to sort of wrap things up. So I want to talk to you guys a little bit about the, the term regenerative. So... I w- have you had this conversation actually at the fellowship? Yeah, you've been talking. Yeah, persistently. Yeah, pers- yeah. so I, I, I want to, um, I'll let you all talk about it, but I just want to preface it with saying, you know, I obviously in the past few years as a journalist covering this space, all the, you know, it went from like nobody ever said that word to it's just everywhere, which should be a good thing, right? Um, and then I, I was just interviewing uh, this corporate guy, um, who owns a meat company. Um, the story hasn't come out yet, so I'm not going to say <laughs> who it was, but, you know, could, couldn't have been further from, um, it was just sort of an industrial meat company, and, and I asked him about some of the things they're doing. He said, we're, we're really interested in regenerative practices. And, you know, it occurred to me that I think um, no, one, no one would do that with organic. They wouldn't be like, oh, you know, we're interested in organic because there's like this defined set of principles around it. And so you can't really get away with that. But it seems like people kind of are like, oh, well, it's this kind of feel good term and it doesn't really like have a defined meaning yet. So we can just say it and it sounds good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I want to I want to get your thoughts on like, are you encountering that and what does it really mean to you and how does it drive you? Well, I thought it was interesting. On the way over here, I actually had mentioned, I said, you know, I wonder if it's a bad thing that it's not uh, defined Mm. because it's almost becoming the new natural. Yeah. People are just throwing it out as a buzzword. But um, at the same time, I mean, the word is incredibly powerful when you really think about like what it means. And to me, it's as simple as are you building soil or are you destroying soil? Mm. You know, because soil is the ultimate, you know, if you have soil with life in it, that is going to create a lively ecosystem above the soil. And I think that's ultimately what we're after, right? Yeah, I love that. It's so basic and <laughs> strong, right? <laughs> yeah, so the fellowship definitely hasn't uh, come to any sort of consensus. But, <laughs> you know, to me, it's a, it's a shift in focus from food uh, to the integrity of the underlying soil and larger ecosystem. Mm. You know, it prioritizes soil health, animal welfare, and social fairness. It's uh, Mm. all those things. You know, practically speaking, we've all heard about uh, maximizing diversity and minimizing soil disturbance, keeping the soil covered, maintaining living roots year-round, and integrating livestock. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, in, in short, it's regenerative agriculture is letting nature do the work. 
For the National Young Farmers Coalition, it's in our guiding principles that we support practices that protect our water, air, and soil resources for future generations. So we haven't said regenerative is yes, organic yes, you know, anything else no. It's our coalition is bringing people together who want to build a brighter future for agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so this opportunity to bring these six farmers who are really in a spectrum of regenerative on their farms and all the different definitions that they use um, together to help um, paint a picture for lawmakers about what regenerative means to them, you know, what practices they're employing, what the challenges are in employing more, and getting some support for those practices. So our, you know, involvement in this fellowship is really you know, young people are interested in regenerative agriculture, so making sure that they have a voice in maybe setting what the standards are, if that is going to be the next thing. Um, Or at least, you know, being able to have their members of Congress and USDA understand why they're doing these practices Mm -hmm. and supporting them in making that transition. Absolutely. And I guess that's what the fellowship is all about. You know, we're, uh, we understand that you know, saying conventional is bad or ecological is good is probably unproductive. And uh, that, you know, what we're really after is finding common ground and finding solutions so that a, you know, different type of farmer, a mid-scale farmer that's currently doing corn soy rotations in Iowa, uh, that they can find a way to take that first step. Uh, And, you know, personally, I think consumers are ready, uh, farmers are willing, and the world is waiting for us. Well, that's an incredible (laughs) place to end on. (laughs) Thank you all so much for being here. Drew, Kelly, Sophie, I really appreciate you coming in. Thank Thank you you. so much. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.